Amen. Well, last week we began to talk about, and I was planning to get into another subject that's related. We're going to cover a number of subjects over the next few weeks, and there's a time when we, we're going to, we have to be away f- for a couple of weeks coming up. But we're going to begin talking about things that are foundational to our lives, because the stuff that's going on in our lives personally, the stuff that's going on in our community, in our families, the, by stuff I mean mess, trouble, problems, and going on in our nation, in our world, in our society, all has a root cause to it. And, and we're, we're in a world and a culture that's trying to, that's wringing its hands because we don't seem to have any answer to it. But God has an answer. A number of years ago, we were having some racial issues in our school, which we never had before. And I, I had an opportunity to meet with Tony Johnson. Tony Johnson, the former member of here, used to lead our worship. Uh, Tony is, a, uh, is in charge of, I think it's, Racial relations or relations is one of the major colleges here. And he came in to talk to me, a wonderful man of God, wise. And he said, Pastor John, what breaks my heart is I'm trying to deal with these issues in a secular institution, but the church has the answer. We have the answer because the answer is God's answer. And because it's God's answer, we'll see today, it's anointed by him to solve the problems that are in the world. But the problem is nobody wants to hear it. The problem is the church doesn't want to hear it. (laughs) But we're going to hear it because we're going to talk about it again today. So that's what we began to talk about last week. The root problem, which people in the world kind of laugh at, The root problem goes back to Genesis, the very beginning. We saw this last week. God created man, and then man and woman, and God created their lives for His purposes. And then God created a place for them to enjoy and dwell in. And He established a garden east of Eden. The word Eden, the name Eden, means paradise place of overwhelming delight and pleasure. So God's not against pleasure. God designed us for pleasure and to enjoy pleasure. But the greatest pleasure God designed us to enjoy was a relationship with Him. And in that garden, God gave them a job. And then God gave them, God commanded them, some translations say, to eat of every tree of the the garden. But He established a boundary. He said, there's one tree of that garden, you cannot eat of it. And then he gave the consequences, because if you eat of it, you will die. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what God was doing by that was establishing a boundary, because we talked last week, God was our creator. He knows the limitations of our ability, because he made us. And I used the example last week of when we first moved back here from Oklahoma. I had a four-wheel drive Subaru, and I was like a pig in slop. I was having fun. I was driving through the snow, because they hardly had any in Oklahoma, and I had this in four-wheel drive, and I decided to go through a snowbank. And I discovered there were limitations to a four-wheel drive vehicle. It's not intended by the manufacturer to go through snowbanks, because I got hung up on the snowbank, And all four wheels, although they were engaged, were spinning. So my point is, I went beyond 
the limitations, the boundaries that were established by Subaru of what they knew that vehicle could do. And God who designed us knows that He did not give us on our own the capability of handling the discernment and the exercise of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we saw in chapter 3 when Satan appears on the scene, the very thing he goes after is to, is to, is to get them to violate that commandment, to get them to step over the boundary because Satan knew that they couldn't handle it. And we saw he was tempting them to do the very thing he did that got him kicked out of heaven. So we saw that. And the, the, the challenge in the world today, the problems are in the world today, is man thinks he can understand and handle the knowledge of good and evil on his own apart from God. But you may say, well, pastor, but we're, we're supposed to know good from evil. No, we're supposed to, when you obey God, He knows good from evil. It's when we try to exercise that knowledge apart from God and His Word and His commandments that we get in trouble every time. And the, the judgment is still there because when you violate those commandments, you will die. That's exciting, isn't it? Now that sets us up for Jesus. But I was about to move on to, the, to applying this principle to some of the issues of our life today, which I will begin to do next week. We're going, we're going to apply it next week to justice, which we hear so much about. Because as I mentioned last week, what we do is we as a society and as a culture try to look at and evaluate what's right and wrong in all these issues, social justice, uh, abortion, all the issues feeding the poor, health care, all these issues we try to evaluate in terms of what we think ought to be right and what we think ought to be wrong, which is doing exactly what Satan tempted them to do in the garden. So we'll begin to look at some of them, not all of them, just to get us a, a training in how to do this God's way. But before we did that, I, I just felt this week as I was really had it all prepared is that there was, there was, there's examples of this in the Bible that are so clear because sometimes we need to understand a principle by seeing how they're lived out in somebody's lives so that they don't get lived out in our lives. So we're going to look at primarily two people today that are examples of this on both sides of it. The first we're going to look at is Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. This starts out, notice what it says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, this is how you need to look at things. This is the attitude Jesus had, and this is the mindset that you ought to have. By the way, when you get up in the morning, let me put it this, when I get up in the morning and I begin my devotion, I set certain things in my mind. These are the boundaries I'm not going to cross. Now, Many times I cross them, but I keep setting them again because the more I set them, the more when I get to a situation, oh, you already decided what you're going to do in this situation. And that's what Paul's saying here. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. We're going to read quick. Although being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was equal with God. He understood who he was. Verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men, 
verse 8, being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself, and this is what I want to get you, he became obedient to the point of death. The answer to the world's problems, the answer to our problems is obedience. That's a dirty word for most of us. We don't want to hear that word. We don't like that word. I'll just, I'll speak for me. You may love it. But obedience, whenever I heard obedience, is like, either because I don't want to or I don't think I can. The reason we don't like obedience is it exposes the rebellion in us. People that are obedient don't mind hearing about obedience because it confirms where they already are. But when we react to that term, when we shut our ears and don't want to hear it in church, (laughs) when we skip over those verses in the Bible, it's because it's exposing something in us that God wants to show us. It's interesting how many times the Bible says that the Word of God is given to us to correct us. Nowadays, pastors use the Word of God primarily to encourage us and to comfort us. But Paul talks much more about the Word of God to correct us. It's like a two-edged sword, piercing even between the dividing of the thoughts and intents of the heart. For everything is laid open to Him with whom we have to give an account. I'm going to sew you back up again, so just, you know, a little surgery right now. So we can see where we are. Obedience. We're going to talk down the road about the blessing of obedience. The struggle with obedience is when we're not being obedient. People that are living in obedience don't struggle. The struggle is when we're not in obedience. I think the Bible says it this way. The ways of a transgressor are hard. So, Paul... What Jesus humbled himself. Now, 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 we just saw, this is the Son of God. He humbled himself, and the Son of God became obedient. So, well, that's easy for him because he's God. But he laid aside all of his divine attributes, his glory, his, all the things he had that made him God. He laid them aside, not his nature, but he laid them aside and became a human being. and was susceptible to temptation just the way you and I are susceptible to temptation. In fact, let's go on and look at Hebrews fact, let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered and went through. We only discover our obedience when things don't go the way we want. Remember Lafayette Scales talking to me a number of years ago, and we're we're getting him back. It's just a matter of getting scheduling things with him. And, and I, he said to me because he's a, he oversees a, about a number several hundred churches, and he said I have men come to me and say they want to submit to me to be an apostle over them or, or to be under their under my authority. And he said that's great. He said but I won't know whether they really have done that until the first time I tell them to do something they don't want to do or tell them not to do something they want to do. So the obedience is learned. It's, it's something we're trained in by the things we go through and the temptations that we deal with. Now Hebrews chapter 4, put that up. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. That's a double negative. So it means we do have a, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. For he was in always tempted as we are, but without sin. Jesus, we saw he came in the likeness of human flesh. That doesn't mean he wasn't human. It, but he, could he had to deal with temptations the same way you... And if you don't think the devil came against him to tempt him, well, in fact, we have a record of his temptations. How would you like to have a record of your dealing with temptations in the Bible? I guess most of you think you're doing well. <laughs> but in Matthew and then in Mark, Mark chapter 4, we're not going to go through it, there's the story of Jesus' temptation. In fact, the amazing thing is as soon as He's filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered for ministry, the very first thing that Spirit does is lead Him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word actually means tested by the devil. What's that all about? Well, God's now wearing flesh. And He's going to be trained because now He's susceptible to temptations whereas in heaven he couldn't be. And so now he's learning how to discipline and control his body and his emotions against the temptations. And he went through this to learn it so he could be obedient to save you and save me. So he didn't just come, walk around for 33 and a half years, and then at the appointed time just die and go to the cross. No, he lived out a life every day, every moment to be obedient in righteousness so that he could qualify to be your high priest than my high priest. Every day he had to resist the temptations you and I have to resist. But I believe it had to be more so because although the devils never come after you personally, the devil came after him personally. Now here's the point. What we're learning is God did not design us on our own to handle the knowledge of good and evil. God designed us to be obedient to Him and as we're obedient to Him, He handles that for us. Here we have the Son of God now a human being. Now listen carefully. This is the whole point today. If there was ever anybody who would have been able to handle the knowledge of good and evil on their own, it was Jesus. See, we can look at one another and say, well, I understand why God wouldn't give you the ability to handle the knowledge of good and evil. Or we look at ourselves that way. Because what we think of is that God didn't want them to handle good and evil because they were dumb. No, it's because God did not ordain them to do that. So here you have Jesus, the Son of God, who never sinned, who if anybody was qualified on their own to handle the knowledge of good and evil, it was Jesus. But he understood this, this, he understood this limitation. So I want to go through and just, I'm going to just read some scriptures to you. Jesus as a man, this is all in the notes you can download, was totally submitted to the Father's judgment of right and wrong. 
John 5.30, I can, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Why? Not because I'm so smart, but my judgment is righteous because I don't seek to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 5.19 Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Father, the Son also does in like manner. John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I put John 8 up. I want to see this one. And Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Verse 29. And He who sent me is with me, for the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. John twelve forty nine. For I have not spoken to you on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that what I should say I should speak. Now there were some people that recognized this. In Matthew chapter 8 we have a great example of that. When a Roman officer, a centurion, comes to Jesus and his servant is suffering terribly. And he comes to Jesus and he says, my servant is suffering at home of the palsy, terribly. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's not what I was going to ask you. You don't need to come, is what he's saying. Only say a word here and I know my servant will be healed there. How do I know that? Listen carefully what he said. Because I also am a man under authority. So this, bless you, the centurion recognized that Jesus was totally submitted under someone else's authority. And why could this centurion recognize it? Because he was also somebody under a commander's authority. Jesus then goes on to marvel and he equates this respect for authority with faith. See, we want to operate in faith, but we don't want to be under authority. It doesn't work. Because faith and authority are two sides. We'll put it this way. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Just like you can't have water without wet. Let's look at another example of this. This, is, this is really brings it out, I believe. John chapter 8, down through verse 18. Okay. Oops, that's not the right verse. Go to verse 12, John 8, 12. There you go. Now Jesus spoke to them again and He said, I am the light of the world. Now I want to go slowly through this because this is a clear example of what we're talking about. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light 
of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, and this is what, you bear witness of yourself and your witness is not true. Stop there a second. What they're saying is, why should we believe you? Because you're testifying of yourself. In other words, you've decided this is who you are. Why would we believe that? You're your own witness of who you are. Go ahead. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. Stop, stay there. Jesus is saying this. Let's bring it over to what we're talking about. Even if I were to make a judgment about what's right or wrong, I would be right. Because I know who I am and where I've come from. So this is my point that I mentioned a few minutes ago. If there's anybody qualified to handle the knowledge of good and evil on their own, it was Jesus, and that's what he's saying here. If I wanted to exercise that judgment on my own, I would be right. But you don't know where I came from and where I'm going, verse 15. You judge, listen to the, you judge according to the flesh. That's what we're doing in the world. We're judging right and wrong according to the flesh, which is what I think is right and wrong. And usually my evaluation of right and wrong has something to do with how it impacts me or whether I have some responsibility for something. So right and wrong is very rarely evaluated simply on its own. We're very subjective when it comes to deciding what's right and wrong. Jesus is saying, and you judge what's right and wrong according to your flesh, according to your own understanding of what's right and wrong. But I judge no one. Was he qualified to? Absolutely. Verse 16. And yet if I do judge, this is what he's about to say, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, for I am with the Father who sent me. So if I could judge, I would be right. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Verse 18. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness with me. Bears witness with me. Now let's look at another example. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, now, now look at this, I was, as I was going over this this morning, this really hit me. He's asking the disciples, what opinion do men have of who I am? What's their opinion? What's their judgment of who I am and whether I'm right or wrong? He asked them and the disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14. So they said, These are the opinions of others. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, What's your opinion? But who do you say that I am? So right now, There's a discussion among opinions that men have of who Jesus, the Son of God, is, including theirs. Who do you say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Now look at the next verse. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Stay right there. He's saying, Peter, you are blessed because that understanding of who I am did not come from man figuring this out. But you heard this and have seen this from my Father. My Father is the one who's established for you who I am. This is not a judgment you've made of who I am. Let's get going. Let's keep going. Next verse. And I also to say that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, I don't want to go into the details of this. But Jesus is saying not here, Peter, on this man, Peter, I built my church. But listen here, on the revelation that my Father has given to you, I build my church. So go back to the Garden of Eden. I want to make sure we're still talking about the same thing. In the garden, God said, you may eat of every tree, you can enjoy yourself, but here's the boundaries. You are not designed, nor am I, I command you, here's a boundary, a limitation. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you step over that boundary, you're going to die. Because you can't handle that knowledge because I didn't make you to handle that knowledge. Now we're looking at God in the flesh walking among men, and men have an opinion of who He is. But when Peter's asked, Peter's answer did not come from Peter's exercising his own independent judgment of who Jesus is. He got his knowledge of who Jesus is from the Word, from a revelation from God. And Jesus is saying, on this revelation that comes from God, look at this, I will build my church. There are people out there building their church all over the world. Most of them aren't Christians. Some of them are Christians. But they're building their church on what they want it to be. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And my church will be built on the revelation that has come from God Himself, our Creator. And not from the ideas of man, not from the doctrines of man, not from the dogmas of man, but it will come only from the creator of the universe, the creator of mankind, God the Father who sets the boundaries. And look at this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against that church. But that doesn't just apply to the church, it applies to your life. We'll see this at the end. If you're basing your life, if you're basing the answer to your problems, if you're basing what you're doing and not doing, if you're basing your evaluation of what's right and wrong based on what you think or you like or I think or I like, then the gates of hell will prevail against it because it's not come from God. The gates of hell will prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys. That, no, let's just skip that. Now let's go down to let's go down to verse twenty-one. So Peter's, I mean Peter's, just he's 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 hit it this time, boy. Not only did I hear from God, but Jesus acknowledged in front of everybody, I've heard from God. I hear from God. I love Peter. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he 
must go to Jerusalem. That he must go to Jerusalem. Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father do. I am completely within the boundaries of obedience of what my Father's told me to do. Even though I have the capacity to exercise my own independent judgment, I have submitted it under His judgment, under His rules, under His purposes, and under His ways. We're not going to have time to go there, but we could go into the garden the night before He goes to the cross, and we can see Jesus wrestling with His own independent will and submitting it to His Father. Not my will. So if He didn't have His own will that he could have exercised on his own, there's no temptation. There's no test. He wouldn't have had to say that prayer. I must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because God has commanded this. And aren't we glad? Because that's what saved us. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. We just sang about that at Easter. We just rejoiced in it. Peter didn't rejoice in it. Go to verse 22. Peter took him aside. And look at this. Peter began to rebuke him. By the way, it's not the only time Peter rebukes him. He rebukes him when Jesus wants to wash his feet too. So in order to rebuke Jesus, Peter has to be pretty confident he's understanding good and evil on his own. Let that sink in. I want to say that again. In order for Peter to think he has a right to rebuke Jesus, he's got to be pretty confident that in spite of what Jesus said God's will was, Peter's got a better understanding of what's good and what's right. Enough to rebuke Jesus for what God's told him to do. Now, he's not that confident that he did it in front of everybody else. So he had to kind of pull Jesus aside. Maybe he was trying to spare Jesus the embarrassment of being wrong. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. Now, why was Peter thinking this? Because Peter knew he was the Messiah. We just saw that. But understand this, that the Romans, that, the, that, the, that Israel was under the domination of Rome. And they were convinced, the Jews were convinced that the Messiah, when he came, and now they, Peter knows this is he, was going to deliver them from the dominion of Rome. So in order for Jesus to be their deliverer, he can't die now. How can he die now? Because we've all figured out how he's going to... We don't know the details, but he's our deliverer. He has come to deliver Israel. We've been waiting for centuries for him, the Messiah, to come. And now he's here. And he's going to die? This doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense. And so his understanding of what's going to work, his understanding of what's right and wrong... He's now going to assert, he's so convinced that Jesus has got to be wrong that he pulls him aside and rebukes him. This shall not happen to you. But Jesus obeyed the Father and not Peter. If we went on to read in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and given him a name that's above every name, 
that the name of, at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So by his humbling himself in obedience, God has been able to exalt him. God has been able to exalt him. And we sang about his worthiness this morning. He's worthy. He's not worthy because of who he is by nature. He's worthy because of his obedience. He's worthy because of his obedience. You understand that the one at the right hand of God is a man, is a human being, and he's God, just as you're a human being and you have God's nature in you also. But let's go to Romans Romans 5 is so powerful. Romans 5, I'll just bring it down one verse to show this. So what we've seen now, we saw last week, we saw the first man that God created. God created, uh, put him in a wonderful place, and then he has set, set one boundary. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do that, you're going to step outside the boundary that I've created, and you'll die. But he was tempted and he gave into the temptation, and he did it. Now God sends a second Adam, a second son. And where the first Adam crossed the boundary and took the knowledge into his own hands, this Adam, although he was qualified to know the knowledge of good and evil, was obedient to the commands that his father gave him. Let's look at Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Also by one man's, that's Jesus, obedience, many will be made righteous. As we began last week talking about this, we're living in a world of confusion, of fear, and I, I, I think I mentioned this last week, but the, the, the greatest evidence that what I'm talking about is just read the news every day. How, how well are we doing with the knowledge of good and evil? How well are, is anybody in leadership doing with the knowledge of good and evil on our own, apart from the instructions that God's given us? How, how are we doing? We sang about it. It's a mess out there. So much of a mess. My neighbor came to the other day and he said, he's got to come back soon. <laughs> Every day is proof that we cannot handle the knowledge of good and evil. And yet out of pride on our own, we're trying to figure the answers out. instead of humbling ourselves, confessing to God our pride, because it's pride, and submitting ourselves again to God's Word, which is the knowledge of good and evil that God has set out for us. To love what He loves and to hate what He hates. There's things God hates. To love what God loves and to hate what God hates. I felt the Lord speak to me during praise and worship and ask me this question. He was asking me, so I'm going to ask you. 
How come the church isn't more grieved by what's going on in the world? I don't mean scared. I don't mean shocked. I don't mean angry. Grieved. How must, how must God be grieved? How much in His holiness must He be grieved with what His creation is doing to each other as well as doing to Him? We don't think about that. And how come as His children, with His Spirit in us, in His nature in us, we're not grieved the same way He is? Oh, you may be upset at it. We may not like it. We may think it's wrong, wherever you may be in all these issues. But how come we're not grieved? Because of the hardness of our heart. And in order for there to be a revival, which people have been praying for, in order for there to be the Spirit be able to move and to bring some kind of awakening, the church has to face the reality of where we are before God. And we've in an era where grace has been emphasized and it will take God's grace to do this. But there's so much at stake here. So much at stake in God's plan at this critical time. God has placed us here, you and me, bringing us through this pandemic, bringing us through everything else. I was weeping this morning when we sang about His faithfulness as I look back over 43 years and the things God's brought me through the things God's brought me through, not just things that were done to me, stupid, dumb things I did. And He was gracious and kind to bring me through it. And He's brought you through everything you've gone through for this point in time because there's something God wants to do. His heart is out there for the lost, the young generation that just does not stand a chance and guess God does something. They don't have the background, the, the opportunity I had and many of you had. At least we were raised in a, in a culture that talked about God and respected God even though we didn't obey Him. We're raised in a generation now that doesn't even acknowledge that God exists. And if He does, He's their enemy. The only chance they stand is us. And that won't happen until we get our hearts right before God. I'm not talking about you're seeing we're doing things wrong but our hearts are hardened. We're just so accustomed. I want to end with this verse. I've read it many times before. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to just go through this slowly. I don't have, to take, have much time. Again, God's not angry at anybody. But He's trying to tell us the truth. He wants to tell us the truth in love. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just what we say, but he who does the will of my Father. We're talking about obedience. So calling Jesus Lord, singing wonderful songs to him is wonderful. But the issue in God's eyes is have you done the will of of God? Or are you doing your own thing? We're talking in terms of right and wrong, but are we doing our own thing? And when we exercise, that's what Peter did. He was doing his own thing. We said, no, no, <laughs> for you to go and die now is just not right. It doesn't fit in with the right thing to do. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, 
Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do? do have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? So we've done things for you. We've gone to church. We've, we've given tithe. We've done all these good things for you. But he's saying that's not the issue. Next verse. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Look at this. You who practice lawlessness. This is the issue. The issue to God is lawlessness. What's lawlessness? The Greek word there is amonia, which literally means without law. Lawlessness means I'm my own law. In other words, I decide what's right and wrong for me. I decide what's truth for me. That's the philosophy that's in the world today. We talked about it several years ago. It's called postmodernism. In fact, it's moved beyond that truth is relative. Truth is what I think is good for me, and truth is what you think is good for you. So that now we're being taught there is no such thing as truth. So I don't want to get into this issue, but that's why the culture is teaching us that, that you decide what you are. You decide your gender based on how you feel. You decide whether abortion's right or wrong based on what you think. You decide what social justice, or justice is, not social justice. You decide what justice is based on what you think. If you're a Christian, you gave that right up. In order to represent God in this world, it has to be what God... God doesn't think. God knows and declares. Serious, sobering things. But we're living in a serious, sobering time. And this is out of control. Unless the church rises up and comes underneath the authority of God in His Word. You saw Jesus said, it's this revelation, the revelation that comes from God that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Man's ideas, man's church, man's philosophy, man's issues, the gates of hell will prevail against that. But against my word and my authority and my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. God's not angry at us. He's not angry at me. This is what God's been dealing with me about. There's some mornings I wake up and I look at all this stuff and I just feel discouraged. At this age of my life, I don't want to deal with all this stuff. I don't want to deal with, you know, I've done my job. Don't look at me so holy <laughs> behind your masks. And I've never yet had God say, that's okay, John. You've done your best. You've tried your best. He reminds me of something I read in, a, in a, a, a devotion of Oswald Chambers talking about this very issue. And I'm not condemning anybody. I'm talking about what it is me. Discouragement is just self... is just disenchanted self-love. Because when I'm discouraged, it always has to do with how something affects me. 
But I made a commitment to Christ. Oh, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I was, if I'm a Christian, I died with him, I was buried with him, and I'm raised with him. If I've died with him, then all this stuff doesn't scare me or overwhelm me because I'm in him. In him, I can do all things, Paul said. Be strong in the Lord, in the Lord and the power is mine. I'm getting into another message now. I'm going to have to bring this to an end. God loves us all. He's so patient with us. But He's calling us. And it's not just here. I'm hearing it in other parts of the body of Christ. He's calling us. I hope you can hear the Spirit calling us to obedience. And we'll talk about that down the road. It's not something to be afraid of. And it's something God enables you to do. He never calls you to do something He doesn't help you to do. But it starts with your will. It starts with recognizing where we are. We better pray. Father, thank You as we sang earlier, for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for your patience, your long-suffering, your kindness, your graciousness for all of us. And the God who's kind and gracious and faithful to us is also a Father who, because He loves us, will correct us correct us in love so that we may grow and mature and be free from all the bondages of this world that are holding us back and, and, and weighing us down the weights and sins that so easily beset us that we may run with patience endurance the race that you've set before us so Father my prayer now is that as we bring this to a close that the Holy Spirit will take what you've said to us this morning and we'll begin to sow that as seeds in our heart and begin to water it that it may begin to grow and produce a harvest of truth a harvest of righteousness a harvest of holiness a harvest of obedience and a harvest of peace in our lives and only the Holy Spirit can do that So we put ourselves into His hands and we say, Amen. Thank you.